Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Breakfast special. Homes, communities, and the sense of security disintegrate before their very eyes. Today, staggering statistics cast a long shadow for veterans and civilians living in war torn parts of the world. Over 5 million people remain displaced within Ukraine. Hamas attacks have killed more than 1,400 people in Israel, and Israel's bombing campaign against Hamas has killed well over 6,500 people in Gaza. While the physical toll of war is immediately evident, the emotional toll on uprooted families, those who lost their loved ones, as well as humanitarian aid workers, has far-reaching consequences that can continue for generations. It's Ahmad and Ryan with you on today's Morning Shot special, and we're joined by Carmen Wong. She's the head of the Singapore Red Cross Academy's Centre for Psychosocial Support for a deep dive into the reverberating effects war has on the psychosocial well-being of people both in and out of these conflict zones. Carmen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Let's kick things off by talking about some of the vulnerable local communities living in these areas. Can you share some examples of the effects and common psychosocial first aid that they require? War has always had a catastrophic effect on health and well-being of nations. And apart from the physical effects like deaths or disabilities, there is also the psychological impact. So war disrupts lives and sometimes it severs relationships and, and even families. The disruption often results in psychological impact that needs to be addressed in the long term. Some of these common mental health conditions that we might see on the ground are depression, anxiety, or even psychosomatic problems like insomnia. Yeah, come on. So we've got the Ukraine war that has lasted for a long time. And now we have the Gaza conflict ongoing as we speak. When it comes to humanitarian staff and volunteers on the ground, can you give us a sense of what they're exposed to? No one is immune to trauma. So even for humanitarian staff and volunteers or first responders, they're usually on the scene responding to challenges and sometimes the situation could be very dangerous or even psychologically draining. So they are also the ones who reach out to the survivors and oftentimes they need to provide not just physical support but also the emotional support. And these duties sometimes could be very strenuous and it puts them at risk of developing trauma. And at times, because of the nature of the work, some of the staff may not even have enough time to recover between the traumatic events. And as a result, they could actually develop a host of different conditions, including depression, post-traumatic stress symptoms, or even suicide ideation. Indeed, just like war veterans and civilian survivors of conflict, first responders too often suffer from trauma long after leaving those war zones. Now, Carmen, more often than not, we don't exactly know how long a war or conflict will last and how serious it might eventually get. What kind of training do humanitarian aid workers go through before they head to these war zones? Psychological first aid is imperative. It is a skill of knowing how to calm someone in distress. It's about addressing invisible wounds that could have long-term mental health impact on persons who are affected. For psychological first aid training, it is based on the World Health Organization model. It's a framework that equips learners with skills to support someone in distress. It's based on the principles of look, listen and link. They look out for signs of distress 
they listen to the concerns that the persons in distress have and they link them to the appropriate channels where they can receive help. So with this psychological first aid approach, it can help to prevent some conditions from escalating into something more severe. So providing that timely support is really crucial. And at the same time, the other training is overseas disaster deployment. It is a training that equips volunteers with skills such as water sanitation and hygiene, um, how to provide appropriate mental health activities for persons who are affected, and also areas of how aid can be channeled to the right groups on the ground. I'm wondering as well, in terms of the duration that humanitarian aid workers are staying in such zones, how long do they typically stay? Is that benchmark we should look to in terms of how long they can last or can be resilient? For humanitarian workers, um, being deployed overseas for an operation, it really depends on the nature of their role and the needs on the ground. So any deployment could be as short as a few weeks to a month uh, or even years. And sometimes the deployment could also be on a rotational basis just to make sure that the staff or volunteers have enough space to recover physically and also mentally before they serve in the field again. So frankly, it's really difficult to set a fixed benchmark. But needless to say, it is really important for humanitarian workers to be guided by the protocols and at the same time also continually assess if the area is deemed to be safe for them to respond and provide that support. And of course, under the international humanitarian law, humanitarians and health workers are protected and they must be allowed to carry out their work without any fear for their lives. All right, Carmen, now when placed in a war zone situation, what are the key things that humanitarian aid workers have to look out for in terms of their mental well-being and how best can they regulate their own emotions? I think one of the key things to look out for would be signs of stress and of course fatigue. Sometimes because humanitarian workers believe in the importance of helping as many people as possible, they might actually overlook their own well-being, their own limits or even mental health state. And because of that, we do not operate alone. Humanitarian workers often work in a team and they provide peer support. And sometimes our team members within group might even notice prolonged signs of stress. So prolonged signs of stress could be stark changes in behaviours, very strong emotions like irritability or even signs that differs from the usual behaviours of that person. And I would say the other key component that they look out for would be compassion fatigue. So that is actually the feeling that someone gets when they feel that they no longer have more empathy to give. And compassion fatigue can be quite common amongst first responders or humanitarian workers because of burnout or because of the overwhelming stress that they face on the ground. So for that, self-care is definitely imperative. I think I wish to highlight that self-care is not a dirty word. And sometimes in order for us to do what we do, to help someone in need, we need to self-care. It's not about taking extravagant time off for hobbies. It's really about setting aside that time to look after our own well-being and make sure that we are in the right state of mind to operate or to support people who are in need. Indeed, the past few years have been filled with an endless stream of painful stories. With each passing day of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and Gaza, by now most of us who have seen grim and sometimes gruesome images and videos as we find ourselves checking the news the minute we wake up and the last thing before going to bed. 
So looking beyond war zones, especially for people like us who work in the media, as well as those who consume a lot of news, should we maybe limit the amount of such news we expose ourselves to? And what then is a reasonable amount? I guess social media has indisputably changed and connected the world. And it has been some time since it has been hypothesized that social media has a negative impact on mental health and stress. And studies have also shown that about 40% of the world population uses social media and especially the younger people who use it on average for about 60 minutes per day. But I think the key thing is not about cutting off media completely. It's really about setting boundaries. So setting limits such as time duration or even limiting how much usage we have so as to safeguard our own mental well-being from overuse. Carmen, we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss the impact this has on the younger generation as well. With the advent of social media, children are also likely to get access to such content. What's a good way to talk to them about sensitive topics like wars and how can we tell if a young child is overexposed to war content? I guess as we observe the hostilities and as it escalates, children may hear or see things in the news and this could lead to feelings of uncertainty, anxiety or even fears. So therefore, it's really important for parents and caregivers to address them. And even for myself, I have a seven-year-old. So a couple of weeks back, he came home and he mentioned that he heard about the conflict in Israel Gaza and he was disturbed by what was happening and that really affected his emotions. So I guess when situations like this arise, it's really important to make time to talk about it, to listen to what the child uh, wants to say. It's important to give them the space to share how they feel and also to ask questions that they might have and to process what they hear. I I guess for parents and caregivers, it's also important for us to tailor the conversations to what is age appropriate. Uh, We've got to be mindful that for younger children, they might not be able to understand the full magnitude of what conflict and war means to them. But we got to be really careful about not over-explaining the situation and also not being overly emotional when talking about it because this could make children feel unnecessarily anxious and younger children might not really understand the emotions that comes with that. I guess one of the key things that I want to highlight is it's important to validate the emotions of the children when we have such conversations. Uh, what they're exposed to, what they have seen and heard, and also what could be upsetting them. Importantly, it is also an opportunity for us to spread compassion and not stigma. Because many times, conflict can bring about prejudice and discrimination against people or a country. So when we talk to children or younger people about such crises, it's really important to use the opportunity to encourage compassion and to remind children that everyone deserves to be safe and we should do our part to spread kindness and support each other. Yeah, a lot to think about in terms of how we digest and approach processing some of these stories coming out from the ongoing conflicts. Uh, We've been chatting with Carmen Wong. She's the head of the Singapore Red Cross Academy's Centre for Psychosocial Support. Carmen, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.